0: hello
1: and welcome to mytho ladies the podcast for Talk about women from mythology and folklore all over the world. We're your hosts. I'm Zoe. And I'm Lizzie. And how are you today, Zoe?
0: I'm good. I had a harrowing experience at the gas pump recently where I saw a guy try and fill like a plastic gallon, like a milk gallon full of gas. And it like war? spilled everywhere. Um, <gasps> so that was pretty scary. I'm um, not going to lie. I was kind of afraid that I was going to like blow up in a gas explosion. Yeah. But luckily, my dad and I survived and I made it home in time to record. So that is frightening. Um, that is the state of gas in the United States right now. If people are wondering, <laughs> um, people okay. are just like taking single gallons from the the pump and spilling gas everywhere. Yeah. Nice. So that's my story. Other than that, that, it's really hot. So that's also not great, but it's okay. It actually
1: snowed in Colorado.
0: Well, in the mountains?
1: No, just like, I mean, probably also in the mountains. Just like at my parents' house.
0: That's kind of scary, not gonna lie.
1: Yeah, apparently it's, my mom said it's fine because it needed the moisture or whatever, but like, it's frightening for the state of the world.
0: Yes, exactly. Yeah. Yeah. Well, anyway, how are you?
1: Oh, I'm fine. Oh, I got a new pair of wireless headphones, and they're noise-canceling, and they are a game-changer, and they are not <laughs> high-end. I just haven't had Bluetooth headphones before. hmm Yeah. So that's my How life. I enjoy
0: them. Yeah. Exciting times. If you'd like to support us, you can do a single or recurring donation to our Kofi. We have one bonus episode, and we are releasing another bonus episode with this episode right now, right here. Um, about it's, Natalie it's another Haynes installment
1: is... of the Middle East Book Club bonus yes. series.
0: Yes, it's about Natalie Haynes' book A Thousand Ships. So, get excited! Um, I have a lot to say about it. So, nice. If you want to hear it, better pay up. That's all <laughs> I have to
1: say. If you are able, yeah. we would appreciate it. Yes. So, Zoe, today's another themed episode. And what are we talking about?
0: Yeah, so today's episode, we are talking about women from the Trojan War. And so basically, we're talking about women in either related to events described in the Iliad by Homer, referenced by name in Homer's epic poem, the Iliad, as well as other um, ancient Greek poems, fragments and plays that talk about the events related to the Trojan War or characters related to the Trojan War. So, Lizzie, what do you know about the Trojan War?
1: Um, so it was a war fought between the Greeks and the Trojans um mm-hmm. from the from the city of Troy. And it began because Paris kidnapped Helen, who was the wife of Menelaus, the Greek mm-hmm. king man. Um, mm-hmm. Which which Greece was more like a bunch of city-states at this point mm-hmm. So yeah. they, so then all of the big cities of Greece all came together And they all sailed to Troy to fight mm-hmm. this big battle And everyone got super excited about the prospect of, like, glory By everyone, I mean mm-hmm. m- men <laughs> Yeah Agamemnon Achilles, Odysseus, etc, etc And it was a yeah. huge deal And a bunch of people died And it was really long Mm-hmm yeah.
0: Yeah. Do you remember how long it was? I I feel like it was
1: t- twenty, ten, fifteen years—one of those. <laughs> ten years. Yeah. <laughs> it was, and then it, it was takes Odysseus
0: 10, ten more years to sail back home. So he's gone twenty years, uh, which is a long time. It's about basically my entire life, give or take. Yeah. Um. Yeah. To take so, one year. Yes, and a few months. But anyways, <laughs> um. Yeah. So basically. A little bit of background on the story. I have it broken up into um, five parts. So the first part is Zeus and Leta. So Leta was the beautiful Queen of Sparta. She was the wife of King Tyndarius and daughter of the King Thestius of Aetolia. One day when he was looking over the earth from Mount Olympus or wherever, I don't know, he was just looking over the earth, Zeus spotted Leta, was immediately taken by her beauty, thought she was really, really pretty. And as Zeus does, he went down to Earth and seduced Leda in the form of a swan. Ah, yes. And that night, Leta also slept with her husband, Tyndarius, and then she found out she was pregnant. And since she slept with Zeus when he was a swan, she laid two eggs. And from those eggs hatched two sets of twins. The first sets of twins were two beautiful women, Helen and Clytemnestra, And then there was also two two men, Kester and Pollux, who we're not going to talk about here for obvious reasons. Helen, being the daughter of Zeus, was the most beautiful woman in all the world. Part two. Thetis and Peleus. At some other point, Zeus and Poseidon got into a huge fight over who would be able to sleep with Thetis, the beautiful sea nymph, as they were both really into her. However, basically the oracle took care of this problem because they were like, Uh, any son of Thetis is going to become far more powerful than their father. And Zeus and Poseidon were like, well, that's not a good thing, because uh, if we have a son who becomes more powerful than us, that would uproot the entire divine order of the Greek cosmos. Um, So they put aside their fight, decided not to sleep with her, and decided instead to marry Thetis to a mortal man. And so they chose Peleus, who was a pious mortal king. Meanwhile, part three, Helen is getting married. So, while the Savan drama was taking place, Helen had grown into a beautiful woman of marriageable age, and mm-hmm. since she was so beautiful and famously so, suitors traveled far and wide from all across Greece to court her and her family and win her hand and Tandarius, her father, was kind of afraid to choose who was going to marry her because any rejection could because it was an immensely political decision, basically anyone who reject he rejected. Could become very angry and declare war, and they weren't like, and he was not super into that prospect, obviously. So he was really hesitant in his choosing, and instead he accepted counsel from Odysseus, king of Ithaca, in exchange for the hand of Helen's cousin, Penelope, who was also very beautiful. And so Odysseus proposed that before the decision was made, all suitors should swear an oath to protect and fight for the couple regardless of the final decision. And so they all swore an oath, very formal, and then Menelaus of Mycenae was chosen as the lucky man to marry Helen. So the two got married, and they were very happy. Were they? now. I mean, who's to say?
1: Maybe they weren't. We don't know. Maybe we do know. I don't know.
0: (laughs) I don't know anything about Okay, chapter At least Menelaus must have been happy. I'm sure he was over the moon, thrilled. Yeah. (laughs) Um, So the wedding and the judgment. So the wedding, meanwhile, we have this mortal wedding happening. We have a sort of divine wedding happening. The wedding of Thetis and Peleus was a grand affair. All the gods of Olympus were invited except for one. Do you remember who it was? Aphrodite. No. Wait. It was Eris, the goddess of discord.
1: Right.
0: Oh, I knew Aphrodite was involved somehow. Yes. So... Yeah, she is I was kind of guessing, to be honest with you. Um, (laughs) And so she was really upset she wasn't invited. And so she got really angry and decided to play a prank. She decided to cause some discord. Not a good person to not invite. Yeah, but also not a good person to invite, right? Especially to a wedding. But you don't
1: want her wrath. Uh,
0: Yeah, I don't know. Anyway, she took a golden apple and wrote for the fairest on it and threw it into the wedding party. And so everyone began arguing over who deserved the award. They were all fighting over who was the fairest in the entire party, basically ruining the reception, the wedding, everything. Um, And eventually the fight crystallized into three finalists. Do you know who these three finalists were?
1: Aphrodite, Athena, and I want to say Artemis... Hera. No. It,
0: it was Hera. Yes. Yeah, it
1: was Hera. She loves being jealous. Hera
0: Aphrodite and Athena, yes. So each of them argued they deserved to be awarded the fairest of all the all, all the people, all the gods. Um, and Zeus was afraid to intervene, and so he decided to appoint an impartial judge to decide who deserved the award. He selected Paris, who was the young prince of Troy, and he was tending sheep on a mountainside at the time um he couldn't decide between the goddesses and was a little freaked out obviously so they decided to sweeten the pot a little for him um Hera offered him political power and rule over all of Asia Athena offered him wisdom and battle strategy and Aphrodite offered Paris the most beautiful woman in the world as his wife wow uh Paris was young and dumb and so he chose (laughs) Aphrodite and therefore, earned Helen as his wife. However, there's a small issue with that problem.
1: She's already married. Um,
0: yes, Helen was already married to Menelaus. So, you see, you see how this is a problem. Chapter five: The War with the Health of With the help of Aphrodite and her son Eros, Paris managed to make his way into Menelaus's palace and steal away Helen. Some stories say that, you know, Helen was hit by one of Eros' gold-tipped arrows that made her fall in love with the person that she saw, and therefore she fell in love with Paris. Some stories are more, like, I don't know, like, kind and say that Helen left on her own. I don't know if that's necessarily kind to her, because that kind of would traditionally paint her in a bad light, but still, like... She had more will, like, free I mean, will. I mean, like she doesn't have,
1: it. I mean, she doesn't have that much agency if she was offered to him with no say whatsoever, yeah. just, like, by a goddess. Like, Yeah,
0: I mean, that's true. Um, but regardless, Helen leaves with Paris and goes to Troy. Um, Generally, the story is Menelaus is off hunting or doing other kingly stuff, you know. And once he arrived and realized that his wife had been stolen from him... With the encouragement of his older brother Agamemnon, he called upon all the suitors that had sworn the oath, and he invoked the oath. And he said, "It's your job now. We have to travel to Troy, and you're going to help me reclaim my bride because you swore this oath." Yeah. And this was a big a deal. This is it's kind of like the First World War of the the of ancient Greece. You know, it's like like a huge, every single kingdom huge is fighting. They're all sending their kings to fight. Everyone who's like not super old, is fighting. All these warriors Mm -hmm. are going because they want to win glory and um, fame and fortune. And so many great kings and heroes of Greek mythology, such as Odysseus, um, who we talked about already, Diomedes, Ajax, and the the predicted son of Peleus and Thetis, Achilles, would travel to Troy to fight in the fatal war. And so, although the stated purpose of the war was to reclaim Menelaus's bride and reclaim his honor as, like, a man and a husband, many Greeks were most interested in their own personal gain. They wanted mm-hmm. to get a name for themselves as heroes. They wanted to gain wealth through looting, pillaging, and prisoners. Um, and to do this, they killed many fit fighting men. But... Since all the men were off fighting the war, most of their wives and daughters were left alone. And so what happens then? That's what we're gonna talk about in this episode. Not
1: anything good.
0: True. <laughs> um, so Lizzie, who's our first lady? We're sort of following a chronological chronic a chronological chronicle of uh, Yeah. <laughs> <As>
1: <laughs> so told. first first we're gonna talk about um Iphigenia who um, I'm just going to say it. I don't know how a lot of these names are pronounced because I said them in my head a different way than what Wikipedia is telling me they're pronounced as. Anyway, Mm -hmm. so I'm just going by Wikipedia. pronunciation. Okay, so Evigenia is the eldest daughter of Agamemnon and Clytemnestra, and she's most well known for being sacrificed at the start of the Trojan War. Mm -hmm. And so her name means strongborn or born to strength. From the ancient Greek Iphi by force or might and Gignome come into being. And she's not mentioned in the Iliad, but she was written by Euripides and also Ovid Mm -hmm. in Metamorphoses and some other works. So before the Greeks sailed to Troy, they gathered in the city of Aulis to prepare for the war. Agamemnon, the leader of the Greeks, kills a deer. In a grove that's sacred to Artemis. So Artemis Mm. takes control of the winds as punishment and their ships can't sail, which means they can't go to war. And so then the seer Calchas tells Agamemnon that in order to appease Artemis, he has to sacrifice his daughter, Iphigenia. So Mm. he either has to sacrifice his daughter or they just can't go to war. So, in Euripides' play, Iphigenia at Aulis, Agamemnon tries to stop the sacrifice, but ultimately he believes that he doesn't have a choice. So, mm-hmm. Iphigenia and Clytemnestra are brought to Aulis under the pretense that she will marry Achilles. So, Iphigenia and Clytemnestra learn about the plot to sacrifice her, and they try to convince Agamemnon to change his mind. But he, he thinks he doesn't have a choice. Also, Achilles finds out about the plot, and tries to defend Iphigenia, but this mm-hmm. is not a popular choice of his. His his army, the Myrmidons, get mad. And mm-hmm. then Iphigenia begs Achilles not to throw his life away on a lost cause. And she consents to her sacrifice. Yeah. Wow. But she says that she would rather die heroically than be dragged to the altar by force. Mm-hmm. Yeah, but also in many versions, she's unaware of the sacrifice and believes Mm -hmm. that she's being led to the altar to be married. Yeah. Yeah. (sighs) But yeah, however, in many versions, Iphigenia doesn't actually die. We talked about this a bit in the Hecate episode, Mm -hmm. but she is saved at the last minute by Artemis, who replaces her with a deer. And then Iphigenia is brought to Taurus, where she becomes a priestess at the Temple of Artemis. And then Euripides also wrote another play, Iphigenia and yeah. Taurus, about her mm-hmm. life in Taurus, where she's in charge of ritually sacrificing foreign visitors. Interesting. Also. Wow. Yeah, um, and then in this play, her brother comes and then the whole whole thing happens. They have to escape. Anyway, mm-hmm. also Hesiod said in his catalogue of women that Artemis transformed Iphigenia Iphigenia into the goddess Hecate. Mm-hmm. but those passages were lost we don't know much about that but yeah but yeah so Iphigenia mm-hmm. suffers an unfair and cruel fate because of her father's pride which is mm-hmm. just the just the first of many instances of women suffering tragic fates during the trojan war mm-hmm. which in a way Iphigenia sacrifices the perfect symbol of the Trojan War where thousands of mm-hmm. innocent people died because of the pride and greed of men such as Agamemnon and Achilles mm-hmm. the war was fueled by pride which only caused innocent people to suffer but it also yeah. caused men in power such as Agamemnon to suffer as well he was mm-hmm. forced to kill his own daughter in order to fight in the war and
0: yeah.
1: I mean nobody's really winning in that scenario
0: Mm-hmm.
1: Like, which is indicative of the rest of the war, which is, yeah. I mean, you know, the futility of war, tragedy, etc. And, yeah. um, yeah, Nefogenia's death is just the first of many tragedies that were deemed necessary in order to have glory in battle. And the first of many women who just serve as collateral damage in the war.
0: Mm-hmm.
1: So, yeah, that's her. Yeah.
0: yeah, I mean, I feel like you could say that she is probably the first casualty of the... Yeah. Of the Trojan War, you know.
1: Yeah, and it's very, like, it's a very fitting representation of the war that she is forced to die for no reason, just, Mm -hmm. you know, to appease the gods to, you know, Mm -hmm. in payment for her father's pride that she had nothing to do with. And Yeah. yeah, but I do like... The versions that say that she ended up living and just going to a different city and living as a priestess, like, that's awesome. Mm-hmm. Yeah. But she also lived with the fact that her father tried to kill her.
0: Yeah, I mean, I think it's just also very interesting. It's a big theme in um the Odyssey, and it just seems like it's a big theme in the Iliad and, like, other texts as well, is just how much fate and, like, actions are determined by the will of the gods, who basically just say whatever they want, and you have to yeah. Do. And then they you know, disappear and you
1: have to just deal with the consequences. And they're not even there anymore. They're going off to their whole different thing now. <laughs> like,
0: Yeah, you know, like, he kills a deer in a grove that's sacred to Artemis. And Artemis is like, okay, now you have to kill your daughter. Because that's equal.
1: Yeah, right?
0: You know, like, that. that's messed up. <laughs> and you that's know?
1: just also a theme in Greek mythology of, like, the gods being insane and causing so much, like, cruelty. Well, just, just like want doing whatever they want, yeah. yeah.
0: And I mean, like, you could be a commentary on, like, wow, women's lives were not valued at all in Greek mythology, which, like,
1: very much in Gre- so,
0: very much is true, especially in Athenian society at the time. Um, but also, like, I think it's you know very wild that you know you do one thing that offends the gods, and then the gods are like, you have to destroy your entire family, right. And, and basically, f- ultimately, condemn yourself. Spoiler, spoiler. Um.
1: <laughs> and a lot of the times um, they do things that aren't even, like, intentional. Like, they can do something just yeah. totally accidentally, and then they have to kill... Like, they have to, like, pay with their family's lives and whatever. Yeah. And you're yeah. just completely controlled by the will of the gods, and you can't um, do anything about it.
0: Yeah. It's very messed up.
1: Very. So who's next?
0: Our next lady is Chryseis, and her name comes from basically Chryse's daughter, The um, is basically the translation, and she was the daughter of Chryses, the Trojan priest of Apollo. And so she was captured by Greek forces during the 10th year of the Trojan War, so the final year, um... And taken to their main camp to be distributed amongst the men as a war trophy, basically. Which is what happened with women during the Trojan War, is that they were taken as basically prisoners of war and concubines for the men who captured them. And during um, sort of the distribution of the goods, to put it, like, grotesquely, um, she was chosen by Agamemnon, the leader of the Greek troops due to her great beauty. Um, But not long after she was captured, her father, Chryses, arrived in camp and demanded the return of his daughter. He even offered money to pay a ransom buyer back, but Agamemnon viewed this demand as an insult to his pride and honor as a king and commander and refused to return her for any amount of money and forced Chryses to leave the camp, probably humiliating him a lot and upsetting him.
1: He's so dumb, Agamemnon. Chryses
0: threatened that Agamemnon would see the wrath of Apollo for his refusal, considering that Chryses was a priest of Apollo. Yeah. And so Agamemnon was like, LOL, whatever. But that night, (laughs) plague struck the Greek camp and soldiers began dying in like the hundreds and thousands. Mm -hmm. And this is the wrath of Apollo. Apollo is associated with sickness and health as well as, you know, light, sun, whatever, music. So the wrath of Apollo was there. It happened. And so as the days passed, more and more soldiers grew sick. They started to get really angry. And Calchas, the seer of the Greek camp, told Agamemnon that Chryseis was right. He needed to return Chryseis to her father. And Agamemnon was really mad. He fought against this declaration. He called Calchas a prophet of evil. But his men were really mad at him at this point. They were totally done with him. They were like, we're dying. And what's the point? Just so you have... you. Are, I mean, he already had, like, plenty of other women um, that he was basically using as concubines at the time. But... And they were so upset. He was facing mutiny from his men. And he was forced to relent and return her. Um. However... Because of this insult to his honor, he demanded another prize in return. Achilles' concubine, Briseus. Indeed.
1: Which uh, leads us to our next lady, Briseus. So mm-hmm. Briseus is an Anatolian woman from the city of Larnesus, the son of Briseus and an unnamed mother. Achilles mm-hmm. killed Briseis's parents and her three brothers during an attack, and subsequently captured her, and she became his slave slash concubine. She's at the center of mm-hmm. the conflict between Agamemnon and Achilles in the Iliad, where she serves the role of a status symbol. It's like the opening scene. A
0: mm-hmm. uh, sing-muse of the wrath of Achilles. Whatever. Indeed. Yeah.
1: Exactly. (laughs) At the start of the Iliad, Agamemnon is forced to give up his own slave, as we just saw. So he demands Briseis as compensation for his loss. Because women are objects. It's crazy. Mm -hmm.
0: Which is the whole point of the war in some ways, right?
1: I mean, yeah, it's very true. Um, Mm. But so this leads to an argument between Agamemnon and Achilles. And Achilles lets Agamemnon take Briseis but withdraws himself and the Myrmidons from battle. And then the Greek army suffers without him, partially because he had his mom, like, pray to Zeus or whatever. What was it, Zeus? Anyway, partially he wanted that to happen, and his mom is a goddess, so... Yeah. Mm -hmm. Um, But yeah, so in Book 9 of the Iliad, after a while of the Greeks performing horribly in battle, Agamemnon offers... Briseis back to Achilles along with several other women and other gifts, mm-hmm. but Achilles refuses. He says that he loved Briseis and he compares himself and Briseis to Menelaus and Helen, and says that Agamemnon mm. has wounded him too deeply and his peace offerings are worthless. Interesting. Side note: If he loves Briseis, why does he not want her back?
0: Well, we don't. Have, let's not think about that too much, Lizzie. We don't need to think about flaws in his logic right now. <laughs> okay. <laughs> um,
1: but so Achilles' companion, Patroclus, goes into battle uh-huh. wearing Achilles' armor and is subsequently killed by Hector. And so when Patroclus dies, Briseis is crushed. Um. And literally every time I'm saying his name, I'm just like thinking really hard about it. That's why I'm speaking so slow. Um <laughs> Anyway, she flings herself onto his dead body, and she cries and laments what will happen to her now that he's gone. Patroclus mm. had been kind to her and promised that he would persuade Achilles to make her his wife, which had more to do with status and less to do with loving Achilles. Mm-hmm. But yeah. But so Achilles is also overcome with grief at the death of his companion, and he rejoins the battle with the intent of avenging Troclus' death. He gives a speech where he says that he regrets fighting with Agamemnon over a girl. And that over he wishes a girl. Too. <laughs> and that he, I know, ugh. And that he wishes Briseis had died during the attack on Lernessus. Wow. What a what an so amazing true. man. <laughs> what a what a guy, Achilles.
0: <laughs> what a bestie. stand-up
1: guy. Um, um. but yeah, then he, and then he kills Hector, whatever. Yeah. Moving on. <laughs> Achilles. Okay. Achilles' comments about Briseis in Book 9 contrast with the way that both parties act toward each other. Mm-hmm. Achilles dramatizes his feelings towards Briseis, saying he loved her deeply, but his actions contradict this. He he says that he wishes that Briseis had been killed and mm-hmm. blames her for the conflict between himself and Agamemnon and the subsequent mm-hmm. deaths of the Greek army. Yeah. Which, like... I don't have to, I don't have to convince anybody of this. I know that, but still like this is so ugh. like she didn't do anything. Like I can't stress how little she did.
0: Yeah. No, she, she didn't She has do anything. no
1: say over anything that happens to her. She was literally kidnapped from her home. Anyway, though. She's literally
0: a prisoner of war. Yeah. yeah. I mean, I think that, you know, obviously Achilles comparing them to Helen and Menelaus is stupid, but also it's accurate because this whole thing is because men are like, Oh, this woman was taken away from me and now I'm going to respond. Can I with, go like, steal
1: back my property?
0: Like an incredibly over-the-top reaction to being shunned by a woman that they thought was like <sighs> attractive. You know? Literally. Like Menelaus is like, Oh, I'm married to the most beautiful woman in the world. Like I'm on top I'm epic and super cool (laughs) um but then suddenly someone else takes her away and he's like what like this is a huge insult to me because now the most beautiful woman in the world doesn't want me anymore like that's embarrassing um and yeah I mean I think it's just you know very um and then this is basically the same thing you know is like I mean it's not kind of because like right Briseis is taken by Agamemnon and he's like wow you're taking away my woman now I'm going to wage my own personal Trojan War against you and it's like all stupid. And he clearly doesn't
1: actually care about the Greek army he literally wishes for them to suffer. Yeah (laughs) um Mm -hmm. but yeah and Briseis's own behavior also contradicts Achilles' romantic description of their relationship. She mourns Mm -hmm. She mourns Patroclus and calls him, dearest, my hapless heart, and expresses concern about what will happen to her after the death of the only man who treated her with kindness. And mm-hmm. Patroclus is also the one who brings Briseis out to Agamemnon, which makes it seem to me like Briseis is way closer to Patroclus than Achilles. Mm-hmm. And I mean, Achilles doesn't really care about Briseis as a person like at all. Mm-hmm. So, like, Achilles exaggerated his relationship to Briseis for a dramatic effect, making himself seem like the victim, mm-hmm. all that, but he clearly has no regard for her at yeah. all. Mm-hmm. Um, But, like, yeah, Briseis exemplifies the role of a woman in the Trojan War. I'm probably going to say this about every single woman we talk about today, but they're all true. They all represent women in the Trojan War in their own little ways. She has no say mm-hmm. in what happens to her... No active role in the conflict, and yet she's blamed. And she's forcibly taken from her home and made into a slave, and suddenly becomes a mm-hmm. bargaining chip between two men who care more about their pride than the good of the Greek army. Mm-hmm. And her greatest crime is being desirable to Achilles and Agamemnon.
0: Mm-hmm.
1: And in the comparison that Achilles said, like she does have a similar role to Helen. They both serve mm-hmm. as symbols of honor and glory, and Helen's role in creating the conflict—the conflict that led to the Trojan War—is paralleled by Briseis's role in creating the conflict that led to the rift in the Greek army.
0: Mm-hmm. And yeah, and gosh, it's so frustrating. <laughs> it's very annoying. It is very um, annoying. So now I'm gonna take us back to where we finished with the story of Briseis. Um, Patroclus.
1: Patroclus. Patric- Patroclus. Patroclus <laughs> is.
0: Dead. I,
1: I. I still say Patroclus in my head because that's what I thought it was at first.
0: Okay, Patroclus is dead. Achilles is really upset because his bestie's dead. Yeah, you his know. best friend. <laughs> his really really good close friend, um, <laughs> is dead, and what is he trying to do? He's trying to die. Um, by yeah. just going all out in war and in this time when he's going all out to fight the Trojans bring in reinforcements and some of these reinforcements are the Amazons and the leader of the Amazons at the time is Penthesilia who is their yeah, their queen so Penthesilia is the daughter of Ares Ares and the Amazon queen Atreira um, and she had three sisters who are. All generally have their own myths Antiope, Hippolyta, and Melanippe. And the most well known of her sisters, Hippolyta, was the queen of the Amazons before her and had died, and therefore Penthesilea had become queen. So the stories of the death of Hippolyta vary. Some say she was killed by Heracles when he was sent to retrieve her girdle as one of his twelve labors. Yeah, that
1: sounds familiar. Some
0: say that she was killed by Theseus when she attacked Athens. There must be some other myths because there are stories where she is Theseus's wife, um, and therefore, and dies in other ways. But I don't know exactly this the story. Um, and finally, some stories say that Penthesilea accidentally killed her, either in battle or in a hunting accident. Aww. So having to come to power in such a horrific way, Penthesilia did not believe she deserved her power and did not want to keep it. Instead, she sought to find a way to take responsibility for her actions and the way she knew how as a warrior, and therefore she was looking for a place to die on the battlefield heroically. And so, of course, the place where all the fighting was at this point was Troy.
1: Mm-hmm.
0: So she came to Troy with a huge force of Amazon warriors seeking to fight on the side of the Trojans. Um, There are also some versions of the story saying that she came not as a grieving woman, but as a mercenary, and she accepted money from Priam, the king of Troy, boasting to him that she could kill Achilles. Um, But anyways, she rode out onto the field after the death of Hector. She fought really, really powerfully, taking down Greek after Greek. She was obviously a super powerful warrior as an Amazon and a leader of the Amazon. Um, And she fought Ajax to a standstill and then challenged Achilles to single combat. So, some stories say that it only took him one throw of a spear to kill her. Others say that they fought for a long time, and then Penthesilea killed Achilles. Oh! However, Thetis begged Zeus to restore Achilles to life, and then once resurrected, he successfully brought her down. Um, regardless, she died. Achilles eventually killed her in battle. And when Achilles removed her helmet, he was surprised to find that it was a woman who had fought him so fiercely. Wow. And then the stories get, like, really weird and, like, gross and creepy about it. Like, there's one that say he fell in love with her beauty. There's Robert Graves, I believe, who said that, like, Achilles, like, raped her dead body. Um, which is really gross and not in the original mythology at all. Like, it's is bad. But
1: Thetis does so much for Achilles, like...
0: Yeah, <laughs> she is the ultimate momager. Yeah, um, she is. <laughs> she really is there all out for him. Um, Yeah, it's really bad for Penthesilia. And it's really interesting because the Amazons are like, that's not in the mythology at all. And the Amazons are really quite well respected in ancient Greece for a time period when women were not treated very well. And so aside from like Hercules, Heracles. They are the most depicted um, people on the sides of vases from mythology, which is super interesting. Um, And there are lots of depictions of her getting like a funerary procession um, on the side of a vase or whatever. And like she's respected. She's viewed as this really powerful force. Like she fought Achilles and some stories say she almost won and some stories say she like did not almost win, but it's okay, Um, (laughs) You know. And yeah. it's interesting because in the popular retelling of the myth, Penthecelia and Achilles are essentially in the same place. They're both grieving the mm. loss of people that they feel they can't live without and feel partially responsible for the deaths of. They both want to die and they both fight the other, hoping that that will the other will kill them. Yeah. Um, and so in her rage and grief, Penthecelia becomes possibly the closest of any warrior to defeat the hero Achilles um who is essentially unbeatable in hand to hand or like close range combat. And yeah, that is Penthesilea. She's cool. Our great Amazon warrior. Yeah, she's really cool. Um, I really like the Amazons very powerful story.
1: They're depicted yeah. as like gross deviant monsters cuz they're like women who are like manly and whatever. Who, like, I think they're they're like, awesome. Yeah. Anyway though. Um Okay, I will say, like, I don't like Achilles because he's a misogynist and et cetera, whatever, whatever. But I, I can't lie. Like, I, <laughs> I, it makes me so emotional to think about Achilles' grief for Patroclus. Yeah. Ugh. I mean, I, mean I, I think... I'm gay. I can't help it.
0: I think that stories about grief are really powerful. And, like, I really enjoy... I don't know, the idea of, like, the two of them fighting each other and both being, like, so devastated is just, like, really powerful to me. Isn't it? I completely agree. Because, like, you know, there's a section in the Song of Achilles after Petro- P- Pat- Patroclus' death um, where we – it's, like, he keeps fighting all these people and he's, like, this time they're the one who are going to do it. And obviously, like, no, they just, like, keep killing him. Like, no, he just keeps killing all of them and he, like, can't stop, like, being the best warrior ever. Yeah. And it's like his gift has become a curse because now he just wants to die.
1: Yeah. And like he always like he knew that like, he was going to die in the war, but he did not think that Patroclus, Patroclus was going to die in the war. And there's just so much like depictions of grief in the Iliad and like in the Trojan War stories in general. Yeah. Like by everyone, yeah. right? Like I don't know. There's Achilles, there's like Agamemnon, there's like all the women obviously, there's like King Priam. Mm-hmm. There's so much grief going on. I mean, the whole thing is about how war is terrible and all that. So, like, yeah. Yeah,
0: Yeah, I do think, like, the Iliad is fundamentally an anti-war text. Um, I mean,
1: yeah, it's about how war is tragic, etc. And hubris, etc. This is not a deep reading. It's a surface-level reading. (laughs) But, yeah. Yeah. It is about grief and loss. Yeah. But anyway... Moving on.
0: Uh, anyway, for now. Um, so tr- <laughs> Troy falls at the end of the war, right?
1: Yeah, Troy falls. Um, There's the, the Greeks whole horse win. Thing. There's the horse thing. There's the Trojan horse. Iconic story. Very fun.
0: Um, very times. fun. Um, <laughs> but then, what happens after Troy falls, Lizzie?
1: So after Troy falls, basically all the women are like divvied up and sent to the little Greek... Men when they sail home and, like, as slaves. (laughs) (laughs) Anyway, so next we're talking about Polixena, who is one of those women who just gets kind of kidnapped and becomes a slave. So she's the youngest Mm -hmm. daughter of Priam and Hecuba, considered the Trojan equivalent of Iphigenia. Iphigenia.
0: (laughs) That makes sense. And for reasons you will find out if you don't already know.
1: (laughs) (laughs) And she does not appear in the Iliad, but she's written about by other classical writers, such as Euripides and Sophocles. So in Euripides' play, Hecuba, the ghost of Achilles appears to the Greeks and demands that Polixena be sacrificed to him. After Troy lost the war, Polixena and Hecuba were going to be taken back to Greece as slaves. And um, this sacrifice was meant to bring about the wind that would allow the Greeks to sail home. Just like Mm -hmm. before when they first sailed to Troy with Iphigenia. Mm -hmm. And so Hecuba begs Odysseus to spare her daughter. But Polyxena says she will die willingly. Mm -hmm. She would rather die than live as a slave. But so she dies bravely as Achilles' son Neoptolemus slits her throat.
0: I mean, the parallels with Iphigenia is very clear to me.
1: (laughs) Yeah, they're very obvious parallels. And so there are several stories that describe Polixena's relationship to Achilles before the sacrifice, most of which came later on, the stories. Mm -hmm. A common story involved Achilles ambushing Polixena and her brother Troilus, and then Achilles kills Troilus. Then he falls in love with Polixena and spares her. And then Mm -hmm. somehow Achilles and Polixena become engaged, but Achilles is killed before they are able to marry, which... Mm It it varies in the versions, like, the nature of their relationship, exactly. In some mm-hmm. versions, um, Achilles, like, loves Polixena, and he tells her about his one vulnerability, his heel, and <gasps> she, and then she tells her brothers. No which, way. Which leads to Paris shooting his heel with the arrow and killing him.
0: Wild. This
1: little uh, Delilah action. Samson and Delilah. Perhaps. Is that yeah. a timely reference? I don't know enough about the Bible to be one hundred percent sure. A
0: timely. Reference? <laughs> Is that appropriate? <laughs> Is that hip? <laughs>
1: yeah. Anyway, um, That made sense to me. Well, that's good. As a Catholic, anyway, in at least oh, one version.
0: I mean, we don't talk about Samson and Delilah that much in Catholicism, but yeah. How should
1: I know that? <laughs> <laughs> Aren't they a Bible story?
0: <laughs> yeah, but that's Old Testament.
1: <laughs> okay. Anyway, in at least one version, Felicina was in love with Achilles and sacrificed herself on his tomb out of a grave after he was killed. But I think that's less common. But yeah, the well-known story associated her with her is her sacrifice that signified the end of the Trojan War, which was depicted in a lot of classical art. Mm. And her sacrifice obviously parallels Iphigenia's... Iphigenia and Polixena are both daughters of important men, one on the Greek side, one on the Trojan side. And they're both sacrificed so the Greeks are able to sail, with Iphigenia's mm. sacrifice symbolizing the beginning of the war and Polixena sac- symbolizing the end. So yeah. just like a little opposite...
0: Yeah, bookends.
1: Bookends, bu- exactly. <laughs> and yeah, um, so...
0: Innocent women die on both sides of the war.
1: Yeah, but it's dual meaning, both sides, exactly. Um, Polixena's sacrifice sort of poses a question of what it means to be free. She wishes to oh. die a free death, but she's already enslaved, so her choice to go willingly into death isn't really a choice at all. Mm. She doesn't want to go from her noble upbringing to the life of a slave, and she doesn't want to be humiliated. Notably, Mm -hmm. she arranges her clothing before Neoptolemus kills her to make sure that she's fully clothed when she dies. Mm -hmm. And um, she and Iphigenia are given the choice, quote-unquote, to go to their deaths bravely or to fight for their right to live before inevitably being killed by force, which Mm -hmm. obviously is not a real choice. As Mm -hmm. women, they didn't have the opportunity to fight in battle or take up any sort of leadership position, and their impending Mm -hmm. deaths offered the possibility of being noble and brave in the face of war similar to men facing their deaths in battle, like this is their Mm -hmm. little glory, noble or like bravery opportunity in the war Mm -hmm. and their roles in the Trojan War represent this lack of freedom and agency that women had. They experienced tragedy and cruelty of war without having any active role in the conflict and Mm -hmm. I also just think it's a shame, especially with Virginia, but also with Polixena as well of being like yeah, I'll sacrifice myself for the greater good and just, like, these mm-hmm. stories that paint women, like, not valuing their lives at all mm-hmm. and showing, like, how brave they are, but it's, like, is that a good thing? Like, shouldn't yeah. she n- care want more? Want to live? Yeah, shouldn't she want to live? But also, like, it's not a good cause. Like, it's so yeah. men can go off to war and prove themselves in battle. Mm-hmm. Like, mm-hmm. why should why should yeah. she care about that? But anyway, mm-hmm.
0: yeah, I mean, I feel like it's just you know their own way of trying to have a, at least a little bit of say in what happens to them, yeah,
1: because yeah, there's you know. the choice of like facing death bravely or not facing death bravely, so like the obvious choice is to try to you know you're very you're like your very, very last moments on earth, like you want to be strong, even mm-hmm. if it's hard,
0: yeah, so. As you said, Polixena's mother was Hecuba, who was the wife of Priam, and she was the queen of Troy. And she had anywhere between 19 and 50 children, um, including Hector, the great Trojan warrior, Paris, Polixena, Cassandra, and her youngest son, Polidorus. Some stories also say she's the mother of Troilus, the priest of Apollo. There's a whole play about him. Anyways, um, long before the war... When she was pregnant with Paris, Hecuba had a dream of a torch covered in snakes, and it was interpreted as a sign that if the child she was pregnant with lived, he would bring about the fall of Troy. And Hecuba realized this meant Paris must die, but she was unable to do it herself, so she ordered two servants to do it, as you do when you're a queen. Yeah. Um, But they also were unable to kill an innocent baby, and so they abandoned him on a mountainside with hopes that that would do it himself. But he was instead found and raised by a shepherd, which is why he was tending sheep when Zeus Fair. came to find I was him for that, the whole actually. judgment thing. Yeah, that's why he was there. But eventually Paris returned, and then we all know what happened after that. Yeah. So throughout the war, Hecuba was forced to watch her children die one by one, despite her efforts to stop them. She warned Hector not to engage in one-on-one combat with Achilles, but he ignored her and died. Um, some stories say it was predicted if Troilus lived to see twenty, Troy would not fall, but he was killed by Achilles before that fateful birthday. yep, um, and so, after seeing all her children die, she decided to keep at least one child alive, and so she sent her youngest son, Polydorus, to the kingdom of Thrace, which was ruled by King Polymester, and he was Greek, but he had remained neutral throughout the war, um so she thought that uh Polydorus' safety would be insured there. And it was her also basically her only hope of him having any safe place because Troy was going to fall. And then there was no way they were going to keep him safe at all.
1: Mm-hmm.
0: And so um, it was basically her only hope as Troy fell, she watched her husband be killed. And then her daughters were taken prisoner by Greek soldiers. Mm-hmm. Um, and so sh- she was taken captive by Odysseus as his slave after the war in the fall of Troy but once they've reached Thrace, the winds died down and they were stuck in place. And even despite the efforts of the Greeks to bring the wind back through uh, the sacrifice of Polixena, it, it still didn't work. So, and to Hecuba's horror, she received word that a body had been washed up on the shore. And when she saw the body, she realized it was none other than her beloved son, Polydorus. He had been killed by Polymester for the gold that he carried. The Greeks were kind enough to allow her to give him a proper burial, but she wanted more than that, and she wanted revenge. Mm -hmm. So she first went to Odysseus to ask him for help, but he said no. So then she went to Agamemnon, and Agamemnon finally agreed to help her. So with his help, they summoned Polymester because they were in Thrace, which is his kingdom. And so that she summoned Polymester and his three young sons to their camp on the beach. And first, she feigned innocence and ignorance of her son's fate. She was like, OMG, how's my son? Oh, I hope to see him soon. Like, I know you're taking such good care of him and stuff. And Polymester was like, haha, yeah, lol. (laughs) Um, But eventually, when he still refused to admit his crime, she revealed what she knew. And then she struck. Her maids killed Polymester's sons in front of him, all three of them. And then they blinded him so that he would forever live with the knowledge and guilt of what he had done.
1: That's like a very cool move. Like, oh, good stuff.
0: Yeah. Yeah. Obviously, really upset and angry. Uh, Polymester cursed her and predicted the deaths of her, Cassandra, and Agamemnon. But there was nothing else he could do. Soon after his son's deaths, the wind picked up again and the Greeks set sail. And all of that story is from the play Hecuba by Euripides. That's basically the entire story of the play, um, which is really interesting. Um, and she is presumed by many, including implied by Polymester in um, the play, to have died alongside Odysseus's crew during his fateful journey home. Basically, everyone dies except for Odysseus, so it's assumed that she also died. And... Um, Other stories say that during her rage, she was transformed into a dog. Oh. And there's a tomb dedicated to her that was placed on the Hellespont between Turkey and Greece. Mm. So yeah, I mean, Heikiba's story is basically the story of a woman who loses everything, like literally everything, and how you react to that. And so obviously, she reacts with absolute devastation. She is completely... I mean, in the play, she's completely unhinged. She's absolutely like distraught the entire play. She watches her daughter get taken away from her, knowing her daughter's about to die, and then she finds out that her son is going is dead. And like every she she's like lost literally everything. She's lost fifty children, which is an insane amount of children to lose. She's lost her mm-hmm. husband. She's lost her kingdom. I mean, Losing one um, but- child
1: seems like unbearable pain, like no parent should have to experience mm-hmm. that. But like having so many yeah. children having to witness each of their deaths, that is just so horrible. Yeah,
0: it's absolutely like devastating. And so ultimately, I mean, I feel like it's a story about war, of course, and its survivors and its victims. And it just shows the dehumanizing power of violence. Yeah. You know, by the end of the play, she's lost so much that she's basically like no longer able to act or like be a human anymore. Yeah. And in her grief and anger, she basically decides she wants to become like the Greeks. She wants to become one of their like and commit the same acts that they committed against her. She decides Mm -hmm. she wants to kill like the sons of polymester which is what he did to her and like absolutely devastate him and make him go through the exact same thing so she basically becomes in her way like the enemy that she has been like victimized by for so long and that's sort of her way of coping with her grief
1: which like cycles of violence etc yeah. like mm-hmm. i as much as like it's wrong to kill people and to kill people's children in front of them like she, she did the same thing like she was like righteous anger, you know.
0: And yeah, I mean, like it how is, I violence breeds more
1: violence, etc.
0: Yeah, I mean, I think that's basically the point of the play is about cycles of violence and how violence breeds more violence. Like that's literally, I think, the absolute point is that yeah. because of all she's been through, she is acting how she's basically put, taking the pain that she's experienced and put it onto others because that's the only way she knows how to deal with it because that's all she's been experiencing for like the past ten years.
1: Like, at some point, she has nothing left to lose. So what is she going to do at this point? Like, she can either let like, lie down and just, like, die of grief. Or she can take out her anger. Which could be, I mean, as if it doesn't, like, solve anything. It can be, like, a cathartic outlet for her. Yeah. And just seeing Mm -hmm. so much violence in these past ten years and just being, like, well, how is that fair? Like, I can do the same thing.
0: Mm Mm-hmm. And I think that also the wind coming back at the end of the play, finally, after Polymester's sons are killed, is just so powerful because it basically is saying that's the necessary sacrifice that needs to be made, Um, is the three sons, like, those are the people, that's what needs to happen, is that they need to die. Mm-hmm. Um, And so it sort of validates Hecuba's rage and anger and grief, and also, like, it also just shows Polixena's death is more futile because she didn't even need to die. Yeah. Because that wasn't even the sacrifice that needed to be made. Or maybe it needed to be on both sides, like who's to say? But yeah, it's just really striking. Um, in the Definitely.
1: End. Like, you have to wonder, like, the survivors of the war, like, how do they even feel? They must not have felt, like, good. Like, every, they just were witnessed mm-hmm. so much violence and death and, like seeing their friends and loved ones die like they can't have been very like happy when the war ended. no they, they were, were probably like get me out of yeah. here like this sucks yeah. people who like
0: mm-hmm. went
1: to war super young that's like their entire lives was just like fighting in this war
0: Yeah, and I mean, like, probably if you're, like, a young Greek soldier and you went seeking glory and thinking this is going to be a fun, quick war for you to, like, go and get a bunch of money and then, like, come home. And then, like, living with the grief and, like, trauma of seeing how just awful it was. And in, like, Hecuba, the play, it's so clear that Agamemnon and Odysseus are just, like, exhausted. Like, the war has taken everything out of them and they're so tired, Um And they know that, like, it's been horrible and that they've done horrible things and they just want it all to stop. Yeah. that's sort of why, like, Odysseus is like, no, I'm not going to help you commit revenge because, like, what's the point? Mm Mm-hmm. You know? And also,
1: like, nobody makes it home from the war other than Odysseus. And he dies shortly after. So, like, really there was no point to any of this, right?
0: Yeah, I mean, Agamemnon gets killed right after he gets home. He makes Um, it home? Oh. Oh yeah, he makes it home and then Clytemnestra kills him for killing their daughter and having an affair.
1: Yeah, um, Ag- Agamemnon kills Iphigen- Iphigenia and then Clytemnestra kills Agamemnon and then yeah. their son then kills, Clytem- kills then Clytemnestra. Arrestes- exactly, like it's just like a whole cycle of like yeah. killing people over and over again
0: mm.
1: to yeah. avenge other deaths, just continuous yeah. cycle never ending.
0: And I don't I think that's generally like their point, is them being like And then or is futile. In, the, in order to stop it, they always have to have the gods to intervene. Like in the end of the Aristia, which is the three play cycle that um Aeschylus wrote about um mm-hmm. that story. Basically the final play, Eumenides, is a trial in which they decide whether or not um Orestes should like basically be condemned for killing Clytemnestra when it was basically a you know, an honor killing to avenge his father and ultimately like they decide that he was in the right. And then at the end of um, the Odyssey, like everyone's really angry at Odysseus for killing all the suitors, but then like sort of Zeus and Athena come down and like broker peace between them and then it stops and that's the end.
1: And it's all just, you just kind of left with the impression of like, what was the point of all of this? Which mm-hmm. is incredibly true. There wasn't a point to any of it. Yeah. And it's just tragedy for no reason. Exactly. Anyway, our last lady <laughs> is... Yeah, tell us <laughs> about
0: our last lady.
1: So our last lady today is Andromache, who was the wife of Hector. And she was born in the Anatolian city of Cilicia Thebe, Phoebe, where her father and seven brothers were killed in a raid by Achilles. And her mother was able to buy her freedom... And was then killed by Artemis. Um, mm. Yeah, but then she married Hector, and by all accounts, they had a very loving relationship. They had a son, Astyanax, who was thrown from the city walls by Neoptolemus. After her husband mm-hmm. was killed and Troy was defeated, she ended up as a slave of Neoptolemus and bore him three children, probably not willingly. And yeah. so, in Virgil's Aeneid, after Neoptolemus is killed by Orestes, Andromache is then passed to Helenus, who was Hector's brother. And the two of them end up inheriting the rule of the city of Epirus, where Andromache continues to make offerings to Hector's cenotaph. Hmm. Which is nice. And when I, okay. Yeah. Helenus was also a slave, but somehow when Neoptolemus died, everything went to him. So, like, Andromache, yeah. the rule of the city, etc. Yeah. But anyway... So Andromache is celebrated for her fidelity and virtue, and you can see in the Iliad that she truly loved him. She's really torn up by his death, and she leads the women of Troy in mourning him. Which is really mm-hmm. sweet, because I think most of the romantic relationships are, like, dysfunctional at best. But they had a very loving relationship, and it's very sweet. And so. Yeah, that is sweet. And so Andromache and Hector exemplify the ideal happy marriage, which serves to heighten the tragedy of what happens to them.
0: Mm -hmm.
1: And so when Andromache is taken away as a slave, Hector's fear is realized, as he mentioned in Book 6 of the Iliad, that he would rather die than see Andromache taken into captivity. And Mm. he feared that that would happen, and it did. And Andromache's entire family is taken from her during the Trojan War, and then she's displaced from her home which fulfills Mm -hmm. the horrifying fate of women during war, the one that Hector feared for his wife. And she experiences Mm -hmm. all the fears that women have to face during wartime. Her family is killed. Her husband is killed. Her child is killed. She's taken away from her home. She has to be a slave to the son of the man who killed her husband. And that man also violates her, and she's forced to mother children by him, like similar to what Mm -hmm. we're talking about with Hecuba. And Mm -hmm. so for this reason, she... Represents the tragedy of women during the Trojan War. Mm-hmm. And I mean, the Trojan War was tragic for literally everyone involved, but like the women mm-hmm. had no say in the conflict whatsoever and they paid the price yeah. just as much as anyone else.
0: Uh huh. Absolutely.
1: But she is said to have died of old age in the city of Pergamon, which mm-hmm. is kind of nice because most of the women did not make it to old age. So good for her. For being able yeah. to die a normal death, as it seems. Yeah, you
0: know, she's the survivor.
1: Yeah, she's the survivor, which in a way is not ideal. But um, mm-hmm. at least she didn't die tragically, right? Exactly. Mm-hmm. But but yeah, and just so the whole thing is the Trojan War was terrible. Bad. It was yeah. bad. and War is bad. War is bad. <laughs> and there's just, every way you look at it, like, what was even the point of this war? There is nothing, there was nothing righteous about it. Everyone just wanted glory, and by the end, they're like, We should not have done this. This was not worth it.
0: Exactly. And then hundreds of thousands of men die. I don't know. Lots of men die. I don't know what population numbers we're talking, but like.
1: I don't know either. um, (laughs) But lots of people die. For
0: all the men that died, they either left at home women and children who had to go on without them because their husbands went off to fight in a war or they killed a bunch of women and children and the- or the families of a bunch of women and children and, like, enslaved the women or both. Yeah. And, yeah, so...
1: in the fate of women, specifically of Trojan women, because a lot of the Greek women were just, like, at home in Greece, but, like, yeah. all-, all the Trojan mm-hmm. women, like, you know, they're... Fathers, husbands, like, brothers were all killed in raids. And then they were Mm -hmm. taken as slaves. And Mm -hmm. even the ones who were, like, you know, King Priam's daughters who lived lives of luxury. Like, in the end, they also were captured Mm -hmm. as slaves. Like, no Trojan woman escaped, like, this horrible fate. Mm -hmm. And, like, violence. So, Mm. yeah. yeah, And both sides were in the wrong. And... It just sucked.
0: Yeah. Good stories, though. (laughs) Yeah. That's the (laughs) Trojan War, baby. Glad we got to cover that. (laughs) I know. (laughs) Yeah. Well, thank you so much for listening to this episode. Uh, If you liked it, we have a bonus companion episode that you can access on our Ko-fi with a one-time or recurring donation. Otherwise, you you can also subscribe, leave us a review. Tell all your friends, and we'll be back here in two weeks with another episode. Thank you so much. Thank you. Bye. Myth the Ladies
1: Podcast is produced, researched, and presented by Elizabeth LaCroix and Zoe Kenninger. You can find us on Instagram and Twitter at Myth the Ladies and visit us on our website at MythoLadies Our cover art is by Helena Cayo. Our music was written and performed by Icarus Tyree. Thanks for listening. See you in two weeks.